You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Welcome to episode 25 of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. I just realized that today's guest, Bernie Clark, is the first male guest I've had on the podcast, but he is much more than that. Bernie is a beloved teacher of yin yoga and a pretty prolific author. As a scientist, he brings academic rigor to the world of yoga, and the conversation that we had today around his newest book, Your Spine, Your Yoga, is no exception. Your Spine, Your Yoga is about customizing yoga practice for the individual, specifically centered around the axial body or the spine. The book is incredibly detailed, incredibly well-researched with over 1,000 footnotes, but it's also designed to be accessible to the average yoga practitioner. It basically contains three layers spread through the book. The most surface layer are the sections labeled It's Important and For Teachers, These summarize the key concepts in Digestible Bites. The second layer is the bulk of the book, and it breaks down the structure and function of all the different parts of the spine in exquisite detail. Bernie recommends using this part of the book as more of a reference instead of trying to read straight through. I admit that I tried to read it straight through because I didn't realize this, and I had to take breaks every hour or so because it it made my brain hurt. Since I only had a week to read it before the interview, I would say about halfway through, I realized that I was going to have to start skipping and skimming. And so I was relieved during the interview when Bernie mentioned that he does not expect people to read it from cover to cover. Instead, he recommends looking up sections as questions about a particular part of the spine or particular function of the spine come up. And finally, the deepest layer is the it's complicated sections that are really just for the body nerds out there who are interested in questions that don't have a clear answer. Leslie Kamenoff, author of Yoga Anatomy, says, Your body, your yoga is not just an indispensable book. It's a long overdue paradigm shift. Bernie has made an essential, enduring contribution to our field. I regularly and enthusiastically recommend his works to my students. Timothy McCall, MD, author of Yoga Medicine, says, Bernie Clark's comprehensive book on spinal anatomy, bringing together yoga and science, is smart, thoroughly researched, and well-written. I recommend it highly. And finally, Paul Grilly, author of the Anatomy for Yoga DVD and also Bernie's teacher, says, The rules of alignment are wrong. Bernie's book demonstrates that error in page after page of scientific detail. The yoga community owes Bernie Clark a giant thank you for his years of work on this project. I sincerely believe his volumes have the potential to elevate our profession. I personally think this book is a must-have for any yoga teacher and would be a fantastic textbook for any teacher training. At the end of the conversation with Bernie, There's going to be information about how you can win a copy of the two books in the series so far, Your Body, Your Yoga, and Your Spine, Your Yoga. So make sure that you listen till the end for a chance to win. That's all for right now. Let's jump into the conversation. I will see you on the other side. Bernie Clark, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. I'm really honored and happy to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What inspired you? So we're talking about your recently released book, Your Spine, Your Yoga, and I'm curious about what inspired you to write this book? Well, this book is the second of a trilogy. It's called the Your Body, Your Yoga trilogy or series. And the first book looked at the lower body. The second book is looking at the axial body from sort of the sacral complex up to the top of the head. And the last book will be the upper body, the shoulders, the arms, and so forth. So this particular book is just a continuation of the investigation of, of the whole body. And what really inspired me is uh, my teacher, Paul Grilly, who since the 90s have been, has been trying to explain to people that there are no universal principles of alignment. 
uh, we're all unique, we're all different. And so our yoga practice is going to be different. And that comes down to our unique variations like in the bones. And so my attempt was, first of all, I nagged him to write the book. And he just didn't have the, the patience or the tolerance to get into the level that was required. So he said, no, you write it. So, so I spent a few years and, and this is what's come out of it. So it's really his book. I just putting some flesh to the, to the, the themes that he prescribed. And it's just trying to figure out, okay, what should your yoga be like? And that depends on your body. It's your biology and your biography that's unique to you. And so your yoga should be unique. The book, and I am at, I, I've only read Your Spine, Your Yoga. I haven't read the, the first right. part, the first book in the series. But I imagine it's the same, that these books are very, very dense and detailed with a ton of anatomical detail. <laughs> Almost like a textbook. Yeah, it can be a bit overwhelming, but it's great if you have trouble sleeping at night. You can read the whole thing from cover to cover. But it's broken into sections. There's a section that's just highlighting the important things for people who just want a high-level view of it. And then there's things that go right into the detail for the anatomy nerds called It's Complicated. And there are sections called Notes to Teachers. So if you are a yoga teacher, here's some things to look out for. So my advantage to anyone looking at these books for the first time is just to Look at all the pictures, the drawings, the, the tables, and then read the it's important in the notes to teachers part. And then if somebody says, well, you know, what are the abdominal muscles and how does the lumbar dorsal fascia work, then you can dive into those details in these complicated sections. So you recommend going into you know, the, the more detailed version or parts of the book when there's a specific question or a specific inspiration to do it and not necessarily all in order. Yeah, it's a unique person that would really enjoy reading this book from cover to cover. But if you're just interested in the lumbar spine or, or breathing and how those thoracic ribcage variation can affect your breath, should you be a belly breather? Should you be a chest breather? I don't know. Depends on your ribcage. Depends on the angles of your ribs to the horizontal. Everyone's different. So if you're really interested in that section, you can go into that section of the book. And that's such a great point because what I found for myself learning anatomy is that I really, it really worked best to learn it when there was something guiding me or prompting a spark of interest in that particular part of the body. But to yeah. learn about it as a theory, it was hard for me to, to hold on to the concepts. If you haven't read the first book, uh, the first half of the first book, Your Body, Your Yoga, is about the physiology of the tissues. So it's not yet about the bones and anatomies, but it answers a question called what stops me. And in yoga, that's going to either be tension or compression. And generally, the yoga arc of practice is you're a bit stiff, your muscles are tight and short, you work through those, they loosen up, but then at some point, the body's going to hit the body. And at that point, there's no point trying to go any further because you've reached the limit of how far you can go. So it's important to be able to answer this question, what's stopping me? But it's not just about the muscles. It's about the fascia. It's about the joint capsules. It's about the ligaments. It's about the nervous system. It's about the immune system. It's about the endocrine system. All these systems are interrelated. You might think the reason you can't touch your toes is because your hamstrings are tight. And that may be the case, but that's only like 10% of the answer when it's tension but there's also the compression side. So it's important to first have these fundamental understandings of, okay, what's really going on in a yoga practice? And then look at how human variations uh, reflects these things. So the first part of the first book is to set the ground rules of that. That is repeated in the first part of the second book, so you don't really need the first book to understand the second book. But there are a few basic concepts you have to really understand, and then you start to look at the impact of human variation and why your dog is not gonna look like somebody else's dog. And that makes it pretty challenging for yoga teachers who teach big group classes. It does, yeah. Usually people, when they go through learning the stuff that Paul Gray's been talking about, they go through the five stages of grieving. The first stage is just outright denial. Now, I've, you know, I've been told this is the way the, the foot must point, and this is the knee must point over the second toe. Not the third toe, the knee must always point over the second toe, the knee must be above the ankle. So you go through the denial. And then you go through anger. Well, I just spent $3,000 on a basic 200-hour course learning these alignment principles. And I've just wasted all that money. And now you're pissed off. And then you go through bargaining. Well, what about in this case or this case? And then you go through depression, thinking, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm just going to join a convent and become a nun. 
And then hopefully at the fifth stage, you go through some sort of uh, accommodation with this and you integrate it into your teachings. So it is it's normal that people will read this for the first time and just say, well, this can't be right. Because this is the way I was taught. It's very different. And then as you work through, you realize, well, yeah, we are different. You wouldn't expect the doctor to give you the same medicine as somebody else because you've got a different body. And I guess when you finally reach that acceptance is the moment when you become willing not to have all the answers. <laughs> yes. And I think the big transition then is as a yoga teacher is to realize you don't have all the answers and it's not up to you to have all the answers. I think the best gift the teacher can give the student is to make the student the teacher. The analogy I use in the first book is a question I got from a, a wonderful guy named Bruce Lipton who wrote a book called The Biology of Belief. And I was talking with Bruce one day, and he, he asked me kind of rhetorically, what's the difference between a pilot, an airplane pilot, and a doctor? And I can immediately think of 25 different things, but before I can answer any of them, he said, you know, by law, an airplane pilot has to go through a huge checklist of things before we can start to taxi the plane away from the terminal. And there used to be a book, and now it's all on an iPad or something, but there's thousands of things they got to look through. And apparently by law, so does a doctor. There's, when you go to see a doctor, there's all these questions she's supposed to ask you. But a doctor's only got 10 minutes with you, so she's not going to waste time going through that. The difference between a doctor and a pilot, the pilot is on the plane with you. And I think about difference. that for a moment. The pilot's, <laughs> on the, in the pilot's best interest to go through that whole checklist. Now, your doctor, you might have the best doctor in the world, but she's not on the plane with you. You're flying the plane. You have to take responsibility for what you're doing with your plane. Now, doctors, uh, accountants, lawyers, yoga teachers, we're ground control. We're on the ground. We can give you good advice. You know, a doctor knows more than you, but at the end of the day, you've got to decide what to do on the plane. You're flying it. And the same with the yoga teacher, the yoga student. They're flying the plane. And if a student comes to me and says, I was in a class and this teacher hurt me, I said, what did they do? Well, they told me to go into this pose and I hurt my hip in that pose. Did she force you to do that? You were flying the plane. You chose to go there, you know, it hurt and you stayed there. Well, realize, you know, the teacher's just ground control. You don't have to do what they're saying. You've got to check it out. And this goes back 2,500 years ago. The Buddha once said, put no head above your own. You've got to check all this stuff out. Even what I say, he said, check it out. If it doesn't work for you, don't do it. If it does work, great, try it. That anecdote brought up a question that I wasn't really planning to ask, but it's a big topic in the, in the yoga world right now is hands-on assists. I have heard many people tell me that they've been injured by a teacher who touched them in a way that was forceful. And, you know, in, in that case, they kind of did yeah. do the hurting. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that follows a whole spectrum too. You know, is it okay to do hands-on adjustment? The answer is yes, no, maybe. Depends on the person, depends on the pose, depends on the intention. You know, if hands-on touching was really bad, all massage therapists and physical therapists would be out of a job. But these people are trained to do that. They can sense where the edge is, where they've reached the range of movement of the joint. Yoga teachers haven't had that training by and large. But if you're a yoga teacher who is also a physical therapist or massage therapist, these people probably would be okay to do some manual adjustment. I did a lot of hands-on adjustment in my early career because I took Ashtanga teacher training. And that's what we did. We put people in the poses. And I realized I really didn't know how far I was pushing people, so I went and took two Thai yoga massage trainings, you know, nine-day courses, two nine-day courses. And I could start to feel it. But then I met Paul Grilly, and I had to back up a bit and say, okay, what's my intention? in this pose. And before now I even go up to adjust anything on a person, I'll say to myself, well, why do I want them to feel? Like, why did I put them in down dog? A down dog could be a nice lower body stress for the hamstrings, or it could be a nice upper body strengthening for the shoulders. And if I'm working towards say handstand, I may want to warm up the upper body. So my reason for doing down dog is to strengthen the upper body. Or if I'm going to go to a deeper forward fold later, I may want to start to warm up the hamstrings. So let's say my intention in down dog was to stress the hamstrings, to get them a little bit looser. I go up to a person now, and instead of pulling them into a deeper down dog, I, I would ask them, what are you feeling? And if they're already feeling it in the hamstrings, then I don't need to do anything. They're already getting it. So why would I need to adjust them? If I want, in a twist, I want to feel it through the rib cage. If they're already doing it in the twist, why do I need to put them deeper into the twist? I would ask, what are you feeling? If they're already feeling it, leave them alone. 
If they're not feeling it, I still might not adjust them. I might put my hand on their back and say, push here. So they're doing it. I'm just directing their awareness. So today, whenever I touch a student, I would only do it to direct their awareness to a part of the body. I won't do it to try to get them into a, a position, but rather to guide their inner awareness. That makes sense. And I, I really love the question of what's my intention. In fact, I, I love it so much that my current pattern is to ask my students to check in with why they're in class right. that day yeah. so that they have a sense of ownership and figure out that there are multiple reasons that they might be there yes. and that that can inform how they practice. And then sometimes I'll even ask them to go back to th that inquiry later in class and say, based on that inquiry, use that to inform how you're practicing right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great start. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of students don't know what their intention is. They're not consciously aware. There's an unconscious intention. Obviously, something brought them to the class. But <clears throat> what it was, they may not know. But again, I think it's the teacher's job to bring that into conscious awareness. You have to teach them how to shine the light of consciousness onto these things. And I think if they're asked that question regularly enough that they might start. And I don't, I don't even usually use the word intention because I think it's a little wishy-washy and a little maybe overused. So I will, I will ask them straight up, why are you here? What, what made you leave your, the rest of the flow of your life and come into this room? What do you want to get out of this? Yeah. That's more the language that I use. But even then, of course, sometimes they don't know. But I think if they're asked that often enough, then they start to maybe question and yeah. consider it. I will offer them a suggestion, like maybe you're here to regain or maintain optimal health, but you're probably not here to be able to put your foot behind your head. There's no health benefit to that. But there are some people where the aesthetics of how they look in these poses is important. If you're a dancer or a gymnast, an athlete of some sort, you do have to pay attention to how you look when you're doing your practice. It's a very competitive world, dance and gymnastics. But that's mo not most people. Most people are there to regain or maintain some sort of optimal health. They may not realize it, but that's probably why they're there. That's not the only reason. It could be they're bored. I'm going to go do yoga tonight. Or they're lonely. Let's go out and be with some friends at yoga. And those are all valid things. Yeah, those are all valid reasons. But the more you're aware of what your intention is, the more you're likely to succeed in, in achieving that intention. Because then you'll know when you're off track. Absolutely. So do you think that studying anatomy, and I mean, your book is incredibly detailed and has so much information about anatomy. So I'm curious if you believe that it's important or essential for yoga teachers to study anatomy. Yes, no, maybe. <laughs> Again, if you look back in the last hundred years, some of the famous yoga teachers of yesterday, they didn't know much about anatomy. What little they got was from reading some Western books. But you go back to the 1700s, 1600s, the Hatha Yoga Pratipika, there was no anatomy there. Yoga was meant to be a spiritual practice. It didn't matter that you had fascia and muscles and ligaments and tendons. That wasn't the point of the post. It was to get to a certain mind state, and you get to Nirvikalpa Samadhi. And according to Patanjali's book, in his map, if you can get to the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi and die, you'll be liberated. You never have to come back into the cycle samsara to be reborn. You didn't need anatomy for that. And when Vivekananda came over in 1893 in the Congress of Religions in Chicago, he was talking about yoga, but he was talking about jnana yoga and a bit about bhakti yoga and karma yoga. He wasn't talking about hatha yoga. He didn't like hatha yoga. And again, for those yogas, it was yoga of mindfulness and meditation. Again, you didn't need anatomy for that. Uh, to celebrate kirtan and bhakti yoga no anatomy needed for that but once you start to make yoga into yoga therapy if that's your goal then i think yeah you start to need anatomy and the more you go down into restorative or therapeutic yoga application then it behooves you to start spending some time learning yoga therapy but if that's not your intent you just want people to come out have a good time get a nice stretch meet friends oh that's going to increase their health benefits too teach them some very basic pranayama they're going to get benefits from that you don't need anatomy for that. What about some of the fitness-based yoga where, you know, it is a physical body-based practice, not necessarily spiritual, but 
Right. You know, to me, and, and maybe it's not so much anatomy because anatomy is about breaking the body into pieces and studying the pieces of the body, but at right. least biomechanics and, and understanding how the body moves in an optimal way. Do you think that fitness styles of yoga benefit from what kind of study of the body? Yeah, I think once you start to take a more of a biomechanical approach to yoga teaching and start to prescribe things to the students as opposed to suggesting or let's just flow. Once you start to say, this will be good for that. As soon as you say, this will be good for that and it's some sort of a therapy, you better know what you're talking about and you better know who shouldn't be doing it. And this is where human variations becomes very important because you can't insist that aspirin is going to be good for everyone. Aspirin may be good for most people, but there's some people with ulcers, aspirin is really going to be harmful to them. So even something as harmless as aspirin is not going to work for everybody. And even something as harmless as have your feet parallel when you stand in mountain pose is not going to work for some people. You're actually going to really hurt their hips because their hips are very externally rotated. They've got huge tibial rotation. Their feet point outward naturally. And to parallel their feet in mountain pose or in down dog, you're having to maximally internally rotate their hips. And when then you add flexion to them, that's when you can get to this impingement in the hip sockets and maybe start to wear out their labyrinths. Without that awareness, your prescription now can be harmful for some people. So if you start to do that approach to yoga, I think it's a good idea to start learning more about anatomy. Makes sense. So in that same vein, what do you think, what have you noticed are some of the common misconceptions that yoga teachers have about alignment or about the human body? The things that you see again and again that seem most kind of off base or having a better understanding of them will really help their students? Well, there's three things that I think uh, we can really look at a bit more closely. The first is answering this question, what stops me? Realizing there is a difference between tension and compression. And not everybody can do every pose in Mr. Yangar's Light on Yoga. Uh, you, not everyone can do a deep backbend or the wheel pose or grab their ankles because of the shape of their bones. And if they try, they're just gonna hurt themselves. So people not knowing that there is an ultimate edge beyond which you cannot go, and usually that occurs after three or four years of a dedicated yoga practice, that's when injuries happen. Beginners hardly ever hurt themselves in yoga. It's the advanced students who keep going, they've worked through all the tension, and now the bones are hitting, and they think, well, you know, in three years I got halfway to wheel, in three more years I'm gonna be able to grab my ankles. But now they've hitting bone on bone, that's when they're gonna hurt themselves. So not realizing what stops me, tension or compression. Secondly, not realizing the reality of human variation, that some people will never be able to do some of these poses. And the last thing is, we tend to make things binary in our yoga teaching. We think just because you can do too much of something, we should never do anything. Like I've heard many people say, if someone's got osteoporosis in the spine, they should never do any flexions. Don't let them do butterfly. Don't let them fold forward. Don't let them ever round their spine. Well, never is never right. Always is always wrong. And there's been so many studies that have proven this over the last 100 years that babying the back or any part of the body is never a good idea. Yes, you could do too much now. You're injured. You're, old, you're older. But just because you can do too much, to do nothing is going to guarantee that those tissues become weaker and will atrophy. It's more challenging to figure out, okay, what is my edge now? I'm injured, I've got a disease, I've got a condition, I'm older. I have to still play my edge. It's not where it was when I was 19, but my teachers do. That's perfect because the next question I wanted to ask you was if you would describe the anti-fragility curve. Yes. That is a very interesting word, which I got from a book by Nissan Talib, who's writing about the banking system and why the stock market crash of 2008 occurred because the banks started to um, join together and buy out each other, and they became too big to fail. They became fragile. Now, if the economy loses one or two big banks, the economy suffers. Ten years before that, we had hundreds of little banks, and if those banks failed, no big deal. They became fragile. Mechanical things are fragile, like your car wears out, it's fragile. Your computer will wear out, it's fragile. Your cell phone will wear out. Every two or three years, you've got to buy a new iPhone. But living organisms aren't fragile. We wear out a bit, but then we repair ourselves. So you stress it, rest it, stress it, rest it, and the organism gets stronger and stronger. If you have no stress, it will atrophy. Things that are fragile break with a certain amount of chaos or stress. Things that are anti-fragile 
get stronger with stress. And if we have a binary idea that, you know, this guy's got a, a broken ankle, let's not move the ankle. Well, that's going to guarantee the ankle is going to stay broken and not get stronger. I don't know, you look too young, Matt, but when I was young, I used to see a lot of kids with casts. In school every year, I see somebody with a cast on. Now you don't see anyone with casts anymore. It's very rare because a cast would immobilize the leg or the arm, and that means you couldn't stress it. Now we know that's the worst thing to do. Yes, you can't go out and play tennis. You just broke your arm, but you still got to do some things, or you're going to get a frozen shoulder. You, know, you, don't, you don't wear a sling all the time. You got to move that stuff. But yeah, you need stress in order not to be fragile. But I think a lot of teachers inadvertently, with the best intentions in the world, they don't want to hurt their students, but they say, oh, well, don't do this because of that. Well, to never do that, you're actually going to make them worse. You need to stress tissues. But how much is too much? Where's the edge? I don't know. Nobody knows. The student is going to have to work to find out what her edge is now. Now that she is different, she has an injury, she's getting older, the edge is moving. Part of the yoga practice is to pay attention. You have an intention, but then you pay attention. Did you go too far? One way to know you went too far is a little something called pain. In the West, we got this concept, no pain, no gain. In the East, they have a concept called no pain, no pain, which is a far more functional approach. Pain is a sign that the body's on the verge of destroying itself. So if you're in pain, you need to back off. And unfortunately, it's not just while you're in the pose. There's kind of three times you have to check for pain. When you're in the pose, definitely it's a one-way ticket up. When you come out of the pose to deter, in which case next time, remember, don't go that far. Or the next day, or the next two days. If you feel pain then, you have to think back, what was I doing? So if you get pain in any of those three cases, you have to think back, what was I doing? Maybe I went too far. And the next time, don't go that far. No teacher can find that by looking at you on the outside. You have to figure it out from the inside. But most students don't have any idea about that, so the teacher has to guide them, has to teach them how to pay attention. That might be one of the most challenging teaching skills. Yeah, and it starts with dropping what they look like, because that's aesthetics, and ask them what it feels like to be in the pose. And the first time you come up to a student, again, in our culture, we're not used to paying attention to the body. We're used to masking the sensations of the body. Just like in my first car, I got a 1958 Volkswagen, had an annoying red engine light that would come on. I hated that light because it meant a lot of money. So I just put masking tape over the light, and then it didn't bother me anymore <laughs> until the car seized and I had to get rid of the car. That's what we do with our painkillers. We, you know, we take them to Advil or ibuprofen or something. Now I don't feel the pain anymore. So you go up and ask a, a student, how do you, what are you feeling? And they'll look up at you and say, fine. That's not the answer to the question. And I'm happy they feel fine, but I'm asking, what are you feeling? If I'm targeting the hamstrings and down dog, what are you feeling? They don't know. So I say, do you feel anything in the legs? And they kind of look off in the distance and a little bowing click and say, yeah. And so I say, well, what is it? Is it, is it deep? Is it superficial? You have to get them to pay more attention. Is it spread out or is it one spot? Is it sharp? Is it burning? Is it dull? Is it achy? Is there a temporal quality? Does it throb? Does it come and go? Is it constant? There's all these things we can pay attention to. But until you guide the student into that, they have no idea what they're feeling. They're worrying about where should my feet point? Where should my hands be? It's all the aesthetic part. Instead, you have to figure out, well, for this student, I want them to feel something in the back of the legs. Are they feeling it? If not, maybe I need to give them a different pose. Or maybe I need to have them experiment with changing the fit position. I love that individuality. I know that a lot of people are teaching really big classes, though, and the, there's a challenge in being able to have those more customized conversations with our students. Yeah. It is, and there's no way you can have a class where you're going to work for each one of the 100 people. Say there's 100 people in your class or 30 people. You can't deal with each one individually. A little anecdote I use for that is imagine you went to your doctor because you had a real bad migraine and you go into the doctor's office and there's 19 other patients waiting for the doctor. You take a seat. Finally, the doctor comes in and says, today we're all doing aspirin. Aspirin, 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 aspirin. And you think, great, that's going to really help my migraine. But the person beside you is six months pregnant. And she says, oh, wait a minute, is aspirin going to be safe for my baby? And somebody else beside them has got asthma. And thinking, aspirin's not going to do anything for my asthma. And the fourth person has got an ulcer. And they're thinking, aspirin's going to kill my asthma. Ulcer. And the doctor says, we're all doing aspirin. Now, you wouldn't go back to that doctor. 
you want the doctor to get to know you individually and figure out what your condition is and what will work for you. But now you come to a yoga studio and you walk in and there's 19 other students in the studio and the teacher comes in and says, today we're all doing sun salutations. And maybe you just did a one week yin yoga teacher training and you think, ah, I need, I need to move, that's gonna be really good. But somebody's beside you has got six months pregnant and she's wondering, is that gonna be really good for me? And someone else has got carpal tunnel syndrome in the wrist, thinking, oh, up dog down, that's not gonna be good for my wrist. And the teacher just says, we're all doing sun salutations. Now you wouldn't go back to that doctor, but the teacher is teaching a class. So how can she tailor the class to the student? Well, one technique is to try to break it up into subgroups. Like when I teach, I have like track one, track two, track three. Track one are people that may be beginners or just people who don't have much range of motion yet. Track two would be people who have moderate range of motion and track three would be the advanced students who are very flexible. And a beginner may be very flexible. They may not feel anything, so we have to give them a deeper pose in order to get a sensation. So I'll offer track one, two, and three. But how do you know if you're track three? And I usually say, if, you, if you're not sure if you're track three or not, you're not. So don't let your ego write checks your body can't cash. Start with track one and then work to track two and then work to track three. But our intention is to feel sensation. We're targeting, say, the hamstrings. We're gonna do forward folds, we're gonna do down dogs, we're gonna do Janu Sushasana, we're gonna do something that's gonna stress the hamstrings. Are you feeling it? Is it too much? Do you know what pain is? Pain is anything sharp, burning, tingly, electrical, stabbing, those sensations we don't want but a feeling of tugging, of pulling, and it may be muscular, it may be, even though we're targeting hamstrings, you may feel it in the back, you may feel it in the back of the neck, you may feel it in the foot, because you have a fascial connection all along there. So you have to teach them how to feel it. And then some people you may have to give a deeper pose to because they're not feeling it. Well, for this person, try pulling your foot forward, try dropping your chin to your chest, now do you feel it? Whereas the track one students, if you're feeling it, stay there. Or maybe bend your knee, because you can't even get forward enough to feel something. So you're kind of breaking this up and giving prescriptions for these three groups and teaching them how to do it. I find that classes that focus on slower movement, it's a lot easier to offer many options. Yeah. Well, that's why I love yin yoga so much. I mean, yin yoga, you get to marinate for five, six, seven minutes in a pose. And I think yin yoga is actually better for beginners because you get to teach them what it feels like. You know, when you're in a butterfly pose for five minutes, you can explain the intention of the pose and you can start to draw their awareness. Do you feel anything in the inner thigh? Do you feel along the back of the spine, along the back of the neck? You know, and you can get them to learn how to sense the body. Whereas when you start with say Ashtanga, primary series, you're in the pose for five rests and you're off to something else and you're just worried about where should my hands be, where should my feet be? And it's all aesthetic alignment cues. Whereas in Yin, you can actually pay attention to the sensations of the pose. And once you learn how to do that, now you can go to the regular Hatha, more movement classes, and really understand what the body is supposed to feel. But even in the movement classes, there are some poses that you do hold for a little while. You might hold down dog for a minute. So you can start to experiment with down dog. You don't always have to have the feet parallel in down dog. Uh, usually when I teach Hatha yoga classes, and I've got some people who've never done the class with me, when we're holding down dog, I'll say, okay, let's try first feet parallel, hip width apart, and that's how that feels. Now bring the heels together and have the toes pointing out like a V. How does that feel? And for some people, that's the first time in their life the heels are on the ground. Now let's try the feet as wide as the mat, toes pointing in. How does that feel? So in one minute, we've tried three variations of the feet. Which one felt better for you? Which one was stable, solid? You felt the sensation in the back of the leg, wasn't painful. Next time we come into down dog, choose that position. Now we can play with the hands. How, where should the hands be? I don't know. I don't really care. Let's figure out where your hand should be. Hands together, hands shoulder width apart. Hands as wide as the mat turning outward. You figure out where your hand should be. Next time we do down dog, that's your hand, that's your feet position. Same in warrior. If you're in warrior two for a minute, you can experiment with the alignment of the feet and the knees and the hands and see which warrior works for that person. And then over the weeks to come, they'll know what their warrior is. They'll know what their down dog is. Ah, that, that is supposing that they are coming to one class multiple times because the other thing that happens is you know there's a lot of studios where they have so many classes and people are encouraged to just come to whatever class whenever and then you you have these classes where you have people dropping in and I think it's very confusing for people actually because they drop into one class they get told one thing about how to practice yoga and then they drop into another class and they get taught pretty much the exact opposite <laughs> 
I really am a proponent of and curious about ways to convince students to commit to one teacher for a while and to commit to coming to one class and invite some regularity into their experience of yoga. At least just well, for a bit. Yeah, no student is going to, sorry, no teacher is going to appeal to every student. And to try to appeal to somebody who's injured, they should be in a restorative class or a therapeutic class versus someone who's a type A, type A Ashtangi yoga. Like I, I was very much into Ashtanga. I still love Ashtanga, but it doesn't love me anymore. Uh, you know, if you try to teach the Ashtangis, you're not going to get the restorative yoga. If you try to teach the restorative yoga, you're not going to get the Ashtangis. So nobody can get everybody. But if the students start to relate to what you're teaching, what you're offering, then they're more likely to come back. So you can't be, as a teacher's point of view, you can't be everything to everyone. So just pick the stuff that you're doing and students, some students will resonate with it and they'll seek out your classes and keep coming back to you. I think that's very true. So there's these three kind of going, circling back around to the anti-fragility curve. There's these three um, points of advice that you have that I was wondering if we could talk about a little bit. The first one being stiffening the joint when loading, when load bearing work on range of motion, when you're not loaded and you proper technique when you're moving under load. That's basically. Yeah. Anytime you're working the joints and in yin yoga, especially we deliberately target the joint, but in our young practice, we engage the muscles to protect the joint. And a good analogy, if you're just listening to this, is just hold your right forefinger up, stiffen it as much as you can with your left hand, try to move the finger. You'll see there's not much range of motion there. We engage the muscles to protect the joint. So if I'm going to put a huge load there, say I'm going to put a 10-pound weight on that finger, I'm going to want to stiffen the muscles as much as possible to protect that joint. But now I've reduced my range of motion. If I want to increase range of motion, I have to relax the finger, soften the muscles. Now it's not bearing a load. I can take the finger to 90 degrees. Now I can enhance the range of motion. You wouldn't take it to 90 degrees and add 10 pound of weight there because that's a very unstable position for the joint. So if you want to strengthen the joint, stiffen it. If, you, if, if you're going to put a lot of load on a joint, bring it as close to neutral as possible and stiffen it by co-contracting the muscles all around it. If your intention is to enhance the range of motion of the joint, reduce the muscular load and allow it to move and let it be there. So it depends on how you're working the joints. If it's bearing load, stiffen it. If you want to enhance range of motion, take the load off. If the spine is bearing a load, you do want to keep it as neutral as possible and lock it down. So weightlifters spend a lot of time practicing their technique. So if they're deadlifting, for instance, you've just got a barbell down there, hands are on it, you squat it down towards it. You want the spine as neutral as possible, then you're going to stiffen through your core to keep it there. And so that's what they call lock it down. And then you're going to lift up, trying to keep it. Now, some people just do the proportions. They can't keep a neutral spine when they're reaching down to the bar. There is some slight flexion in the lower back. They can train their bones to be able to withstand that over years. They can do it. Um, there's a spine biomechanic who influenced me a lot named Stu McGill. He's a professor of uh, uh, spine biomechanics at the University of Waterloo. And he talks about callousing the bones. And he even worked with an uh, Olympic athlete, an American weightlifter who fractured his sacrum completely in half and was told that he'd be lucky if he had to walk again, let alone lift again. And he was about to get surgery to fuse it and you know, his whole rest of his life would be terrible. But Stuart worked with him for a year, gave him very simple type of exercises, but it managed to fuse the bone together again and callous the bone so it could take these higher stresses. So these people who do it, whether it's a Jepson curl or not, they've trained their bones to be able to do this. It's not advisable for someone who's never done this before to do that, to flex their spine and put a huge load on it. But weightlifters and Olympic athletes, these people have trained over years and years. Yeah, they can get away with it. Well, they're but doing it progressively. So it's not like they're, you know, they're going one day, keeping their spine in neutral, and then the next day they're putting a big load I mean, you, you kind of start from zero, right? You add a little bit at a time, just like you would in, in any weightlifting move. Yeah, but they don't quite start from zero because they're always working with their body weight. Mm -hmm. right. A lot of people, that's fine. Right. So like, when we do a forward fold, when I say reduce the load, I don't mean zero load. Like, there's a big fear in yoga about some people think you shouldn't round the spine to do a forward fold. Or there's rolling down and rolling up, which is common Pilates. 
for some reason should not be allowed in yoga. Well, that's just the normal body weight, and the spine is actually designed to be able to do that, to be fully flexed under normal body weight. But if you are not an Olympic athlete and you then decide, I'm going to curl up slowly with a 100-pound barbell, that is putting a load on a completely flexed spine, and that's when death and destruction occur. But most normal, healthy people can roll down and roll up again. And I can get into the details of why that happens. It's not actually the muscles. It's the fascia in the back that take that stress. Once you've, once you've folded past, say, like 40 degrees, the muscles actually turn off because the muscles would have to work so strongly they would actually crush the disc between the vertebrae. So the muscles turn off, and it's the fascia that takes it. And our fascia and our ligaments are actually elastic. And I don't know where this thing got started in yoga world that we're not supposed to stretch ligaments and we're not supposed to stretch tendons. We are supposed to stretch them. We're designed to stretch. There's a ligament in the back called the ligamentum flavum, which is Latin for yellow ligament. And it's yellow because it's 80% elastin fibers, elastic fibers. And this is our anti-gravity uh, ligament. So when you fold forward, this is the thing that's pulling you back up against. The elasticity of that ligament allows us to curl up again. We're meant to do that. But if we're then adding a huge load, we have to be very careful how we do this because you can over, overly stress the vertebrae, they can start to shear forward, and that's when bad things can happen. So even the Olympic athletes, they don't round their back when they're doing a deadlift. In the context of yoga, what I saw a lot in your book was the way that you know we can add load to the spine when we flip ourselves upside down, for example, or when we put, depending on the shape that our body is in, then the load that's, say, on our cervical spine in a plow pose is very different from in a cat pose, which is a very similar shape. There's two types of stresses we put on the spine. One is called compression, which is an axial stress, like the bones are pushing into the bones. The other is called shear, where one vertebrae tends to slide off the top of the other. The spine is designed to withstand a lot more compression stress than shear stress. So when you're folding forward or doing a back bend, the big fear is that the shear will pull one vertebrae off the other. And so we engage the muscles to actually compress the bones together more to withstand the shear. Now, we're designed to do a forward fold under the weight of the body because we got seven layers of fashion ligaments on the backside. But if you go a back bend, if you're dropping back to wheel, we don't have seven layers of ligaments. We only got one layer of ligament. It's called the anterior longitudinal ligament. And that doesn't have the same strength that we have in the back. So doing a back bend, slowly curling back, is far more risky. You're only supporting your upper body weight, which is okay in a flexion, but it's not as good in extension. So there's a case where, again, we're now putting a huge load onto these, these tissues, and they're not really designed or trained to withstand them. So it depends on the direction of the movement and the type of stress we've got. The neck is not designed to withstand a lot of compression stress. You know, it's designed to carry the weight of your head, which is about 10 pounds. It's not designed to carry 140 pounds if you're turning upside down. Now, some people can do it. Everything can just line up enough. And if you're a smaller person, if you're lighter, you don't have as much stress on it. But if you're a bigger person, there's more stress on the neck. And unfortunately, because of something called the scaling laws, the bigger you get, the weaker the tissues are per unit of measurement. And like a six foot four linebacker doing headstand is far more at risk than a five foot tall woman who's only 100 pounds. His neck is just not designed for that. Right. And none of our necks are actually designed for it, but some of us can do it. <laughs> yeah, some people can get away with it and they get some benefits from it. But, yeah. but in the plow pose or the shoulder stand, that's where we're flexing the neck 90 degrees. And for some people, they can't. It's just the shape of the balance, the bones hit at, say, 70 degrees. And to try to force it into 90 degrees, now you're forcing it past its natural range of motion. And that's when you can really damage joint capsules. Or some people feel it in the throat. When you bring your chin to your chest, some people squish the organs of the throat, the trachea, the, the thyroid, the parathyroids. All these soft tissues are getting compressed between the jaw and the front of the spine. And just to do plow deeply, you're just squishing those tissues. They're not meant to be squished. Some people have the body to do it. They can do a 90-degree angle with their neck, no problem. Others, you better put blankets under their shoulders so they don't have to get to 90 degrees. But that doesn't mean that everyone has to have blankets, just some people. Right. And we get back to the conundrum of, you know, teaching a big class of very varied people. 
Yeah, so you have to say, try this, try that. How does it work for you? And in the future, you know that works for you. That's your plow. But don't insist that everybody has to have blankets. So if you were able to magically influence all the yoga teacher trainings around the world, what would be your priority for influencing yeah. or shifting how yoga is taught? I think there is a change happening thanks to Paul Grilly and some of his senior teachers throughout the decades. It's starting to get this out there, but human variation. It's ironic. We all know we look different on the outside. Everyone's got different faces, different voices, different fingerprints. But for some reason, we think we're all exactly the same on the inside and that everybody should be able to do every pose. And part of the reason is we read anatomy books. If you look in the anatomy book, there's one picture of a spine. And it's an average. It's an average hundreds of cadavers. And if everyone had that spine, yeah, everyone could do wheel pose. But that's not a real spine. Nobody actually has a spine like that. But if that's your mental map, you would think, well, everyone should be able to do this pose. They just have to work hard enough, long enough, with the right supplements and the right Lululemon outfit. And with my great teaching, I can get everyone to grab their feet behind their head. Well, that's not real. Human variation means that everybody's different. And it's not just in yoga we find this. Uh, I've got a 1940s anatomy book written by a doctor who is also a teacher. And in it, in this preface, he says, he talks about how frustrated his students are when he says, it depends. They want to just know the one thing they can tell their, their patients. This is the way the liver is, but everyone's liver is different. Or this is the way your appendix is. The appendix, most people know, is on the lower right side of your belly, except for those where it isn't. It can be on the left side. It can be lower down. It could be like, oh, you have an ovary problem. No, that's the appendix. Or it could be you know, all over the place. And without realizing everyone's different, you can make huge mistakes. In yoga, we, we got these universal cues. Everyone has to have their feet perfectly aligned. And that may be fine for 40% of the class, but it can be death and destruction for 10% of the class and uncomfortable for 50% of the class because we don't realize, no, everyone's different. I asked you in the beginning if there was any kind of homework or advice that you wanted to invite the listeners of this podcast who are either yoga teachers or sometimes yoga teachers in training to practice. Yeah, if you're a teacher or a teacher in training, ask your students, what are they feeling? If you're a student listening to this, ask yourself, what am I feeling? This is a great Zen koan. You probably heard of Zen koans, these funky little questions like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Uh, Bart Simpson solved that one for me once just by clapping one hand. But uh, another one that was, what did your face look like before your parents were born? these are just meant to stop you from thinking analytically and just experience something. So ask yourself, what is this? What am I feeling? Before you go out and do anything to a student, have an intention for the pose. I use the example of, well, I want to stress the hamstrings. So if that's your intention, maybe you put them in down dog. Before adjusting them, ask them, what are they feeling? Realizing that most students have no idea, they'll just look at you blankly and say, fine. So you'll have to guide them. You'll have to say, okay, are you feeling anything in the back of the leg? This is the area we're targeting. Our target area is the back of the leg. Do you feel anything there? And they may not know it right away, but through time and practice, you can get them to pay attention to the body. And they'll start to say, oh yeah, now we can feel it. It is a bit of a tugging feeling. Or maybe they're feeling pain at the, right at the sit bones. That we don't want. But you know, unless they're paying attention, they might just stay there, even though they got this slight burning at the, the tendon that joins the hamstring to the bone. In that case, you've got to get them out of that pose. But you don't know by looking. So what are you feeling? Make that the first thing you ask every student. Of course, that requires that you have an intention for the pose, and that's a big change in your teaching style too. Why, why am I getting in this pose? Most people have no idea why they are. say, oh, let's do down dog. Well, it's part of a flow. i got this nice flow worked out. And it could be lovely just to flow sometimes. Just put on some nice music and just move for an hour, an hour and a half. But if you're really looking at a functional approach to yoga and you want to regain or maintain optimal health, you want to work the hips in all six degrees of movement. You want to move the spine through all six degrees of movement. You want to strengthen the tissues. And so if that's your intention, well, I want to externally rotate. What am I feeling? Am I getting that? I want to internally rotate. What are you feeling? Are you getting that? And one way, one thing that can help you is, you know, studying human movement, including if you're interested, if this episode has piqued your attention and you want to check out Bernie's books, that I think they're super helpful. 
Your Spine, Your Yoga is the most recent one that just came out. And remind me again of the name of the first one of the series. Your Body, Your Yoga. Oh, Your Body, Your Yoga. Perfect. And Bernie has generously offered to do a giveaway with the audience of this podcast. And specifically, he's going to give away both books. For people who are on the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group, it's pretty easy to join. You can just go to teachingyoga.net slash join. And once this episode is released, there'll be a post for it. And you just click on the post and type in what your favorite takeaway, something you learned in this episode, and you'll be entered to win. So Bernie, how can people find out more about you if they don't win and want to buy your book or they want to study with you? What's the best way to get in touch? Uh, My website is called yinyoga.com, Y-I-N yoga.com. And on there, there's a, up on the top left, there's some buttons and there's a button for the books. So you can find my complete guide to yoga. You can find these books and a few other books I've got up there. And I've also got a thing like there called upcoming events. So if they want to come and take a course with me, they can find me there as well. Where, where are you located? I'm in Vancouver, Canada. Oh gosh. Beautiful, beautiful place. Yes. It's a lovely destination spot. So come see the mountains, the water, the green. Bernie, thank you so much for talking to me this evening, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It was a delight. I hope that conversation with Bernie was helpful and was inspiring. It can feel daunting and overwhelming to discover that the human body is even more complex and varied than we could have imagined, but it can also be freeing and uplifting. Maybe those poses that you've struggled with for so long just aren't made for your body. Maybe it's okay to remove them from your repertoire if they don't feel good or to change them up into a way that does feel good. And maybe it's okay to not have all the answers for your students. It's okay to say, I don't know. If you want to keep diving in to the study of the human body and its variations, I hope that you will get Bernie's books, Your Body, Your Yoga, and Your Spine, Your Yoga, or maybe win them in the giveaway. To enter the giveaway, you do need to be a member of the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group. And if you're not a member yet, it's really easy to join. Just go to teachingyoga.net slash join. And once you send the join request, there'll be a couple questions, three. Make sure that you do answer those. There's no specific answer other than, you know, that you are a yoga teacher or a teacher in training. But I do check to make sure that people can follow directions enough to answer questions. The Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group has over a thousand members now, and we're growing quickly. The group is a wonderful way to plug into a supportive community of yoga teachers where you can get advice, you can network, and you can commiserate. That is it for today. I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Until then, have an amazing week. Step outside your comfort zone so that you can grow and thrive as a yoga teacher. And please remember to make time for your personal practice.